you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, last month, we began a series of messages through uh, three books found in the Old Testament. They are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those three books collectively are, the, are historical books, books of history, uh, but they, they share a common focus, and that is the post-exilic era. In other words, these three books are going to focus in on the things that happened to Israel after the Babylonian exile. And it, it, it focuses in in such a way that Ezra and Nehemiah look specifically at the people who are returning back to Jerusalem. That's called the remnant. And then the book of Esther is going to focus on the people who did not return. And they're often referred to as the diaspora. But we call this series Hope After the Storm. The reason is because these captivities, the, these, these captives, they have been in Babylon for 70 years. Over, well, over 70 years by this point. But at the 70th year, they were given permission to, to start returning. And some of them did. And we saw that through uh, the book of Ezra. We saw that they actually went in two different groups. And uh, that first group led them, uh, that was the largest group, they led back very early on. Then Ezra led a second group back to Israel. But why do we call it hope after the storm? We call it hope after the storm because God had a very specific message for uh, his children. That message was, even though you find yourself in the middle of captivity, even though you find yourself in the middle of a very difficult circumstance, I want you to know that I have plans for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, where does that come from? That's Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah, in his book, chapter 29, is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to those exiles in Babylon. And he is encouraging them and letting them know, listen, there is going to be hope. There's going to be hope after all of this stuff is over. So I think that's relevant for us as well. For us to find hope. For us to know that there is hope. No matter what storm you're facing, no matter what it is, whatever challenge you have, to know that there is hope. In Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, we saw the impact that hope and care from just one person, the impact that that can have. Nehemiah himself demonstrated hope and he demonstrated care to the remnant. So much so that it interrupted his own life, that he, that he stopped what he was doing and was given permission by the king of Persia to head back himself. Chapter 3 then shows the people's response to Nehemiah's call to action as they began construction on the gates and the wall around the city of Jerusalem. But as we prepare to walk through chapter 4 today, let me make one quick observation and then what we'll do is we will break the bread of God's word together. When we speak of hope after the storm in reference to the exile, that it is not to imply or suggest that once they made it through, that the storm of the 70-year exile 
that life was easy on the other side. And that wasn't the case. It wasn't easy. But now that the remnant has returned to Israel, they're actually going to begin to face attacks. Satan has a typical um, toolbox, if you will. He returns to the same tools over and over and over again. We see them throughout Scripture, and we can identify them. In fact, I think it's important for us to identify them because when, when we experience those things, we can recognize the enemy. We can recognize where those uh, attacks are coming from. Now, we can see some of them outlined in chapters 4 through 6 of Nehemiah. One of the first things that the enemy does is he uses outside forces to attack us. And we're going to see that throughout chapter 4. As you continue to read on your own, I hope this week you continue to read through the book of Nehemiah, the second thing you'll notice in chapter 5 is that the enemy then has hope, he has, he has tried to, to plant some discouragement, doubt, so that now the attack comes from within. We start attacking one another. And then when we turn to chapter 5, or chapter 6 rather, then we see that the enemy begins to attack specific leaders. So he has this tactic in mind. He wants to come in first from the outside. He wants to create some division. Uh, he wants to create some doubt. He wants to create some discouragement. And then the attack, once that attack takes root, then we begin to attack each other and we begin to, to discourage one another. And then he begins to attack leadership. So opposition can be a tricky thing. Opposition can often be evidence that you're actually in line with God's purposes. But opposition can also be an opportunity for growth. Satan wants to use these problems as a means to destroy the work of the advancement of the kingdom of God. God wants to use these problems as tools to build his people and his kingdom. So this morning, I want us to focus in then specifically as we work through Nehemiah 4, and I want us to discover some tactics that Satan uses to prevent you from advancing the kingdom of God, to prevent you from having a walk with the Lord that actually advances the kingdom of God. So let's begin. Key point number one. Here it is. Ridicule is one of Satan's attacks to make you feel inferior. Ridicule is one of Satan's attacks to make you feel inferior. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Uh, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Verse 4, hear, O our God. For we are despised. Turn their reproach on their heads 
and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love, I love how verse 6 just says, so we built the wall. You know, even in the midst of all of that, so we built the wall. But I want you to know a few things here about ridicule. In his play, Much Ado About Nothing, Shakespeare writes these words. He says, shall quips and sentences and these paper bullets of the brain awe a man from the career of his humor? And his response then is a resounding no. And it's interesting. I want us to focus in there. You know, Shakespeare writes these words, these paper bullets of the brain. His idea there is that uh, there are words that can sometimes be used as ammunition. They're words of our mind, and they can be used as bullets, as ammunition. But should, should they put a stop to the work that we're called to? And Shakespeare is saying no. What Shakespeare is actually doing, he's writing uh, out the exact same response that we should have. It's, it's mirrored of Nehemiah chapter 4, that even though Satan has thrown these paper bullets of the brain, even though he has thrown these uh, intellectual uh, words, these, these insults, these ridicules, they're nothing more than paper bullets. And, and it should not stop us or hinder us from the work of God. So let's walk through. Let's look at some of these points of ridicule, some of the things that they said. Sanballat began by ridiculing the people, by calling them feeble Jews. Feeble. Have you ever experienced that? Has anyone ever, have, has anyone ever ridiculed you in such a way that maybe they attack your your personhood, maybe called you feeble, maybe called you something that uh, you, you didn't like, didn't appreciate, don't want to be associated with. You know, no one wants to be called feeble. But understand this, that Satan has a tactic. His words here that he's causing Sanballat to, to say are, are words that are intended to make the, the Jewish people feel inferior. They're better. They're not feeble. You're feeble. Satan wants to attack you and make you feel weak. But rest assured, if we, if we replace that lie with the truth of God's word, then we recognize that in our weakness, God is made. God, God can make us strong. So San Ballot begins by ridiculing them as a people, these feeble Jews. Then he continued by ridiculing the work itself. He says, will they fortify themselves? In other words, how are these feeble Jews going to build a wall strong enough to defend themselves against an army? Are they going to fortify themselves? It's mocking their, their work itself. And then he ridiculed their faith. Has anyone ever ridiculed your faith? Here's what he says. Will they offer sacrifices? This is another way of mocking their faith. It's going to take, in other words, they're, they're, they're saying, 
<laughs> it's going to take more than sacrifices. It's go- you ever heard it said this way? It's going to take more than prayer. They're making fun. They're, they're mocking. They're, they're, they're making fun of these, these, this remnant as they are trying to be obedient to the Lord. They're mocking them as people. They're mocking their work itself. They're mocking their faith. Their, their statement, will they offer sacrifices, not just a, a mocking of their faith in the sense of, oh, you're going to need more than prayer. It was a denial that God would even help his people. He then ridiculed their intellect and their work ethic. Will they finish in a day? It's as if to say, look, they're not even smart enough to realize the difficult challenge ahead of them. Look, they're probably going to get started and be ready to quit in a single day. Statement after statement after statement. He's attacked their personhood. He has attacked the work that they've done. Did you ever have someone ridicule your work? Maybe something that you've done. Maybe you're at your job where you thought you did a good job and then someone comes along and tells you what a terrible job it was. Has someone ever ridiculed your faith? See, Satan has this in his tool belt. He knows to attack you as a person. He knows to attack the things that you're doing. He knows to attack your faith. And every single one of those is for the purpose of ridicule to make you feel inferior. He then goes on to ridicule their materials. The stones that they were using, they were actually from the heaps of rubbish. Tobiah chimes in and he says, it won't take an army to knock down the wall. Even if a single fox comes along, he would destroy it. It's, it's probably enough just to have one of those. Just to have one of those can, can, feel, uh, can make you feel inferior. Just one of those attacks. But to have all of them back to back to back. And not just from one person, but from Sanballat and Tobiah. From two different, from two different nations. Two different people representing two different people groups making fun. Saying, even, even if you did, a fox could come along and knock this down. You're, you're nothing. You are inferior to us. Satan wants to do the same thing. Satan wants to make you feel inferior. He wants you to feel that God is not going to help you. Prayer isn't enough. That you are not enough. That you're somehow deficient. And God is not even capable of using you. But understand this, nothing could be further from the truth. God takes delight in using you for his purposes. So what ridicule have you experienced in your life? Understand that ridicule is a tool of the devil himself. And his purpose is to make you feel inferior. The things that people say can hurt us, but their words are not capable of ongoing harm unless we let them get into our system and poison us and if we spend so much time pondering the enemy's words that we give Satan a foothold from which he can launch yet another attack 
So what's the best thing to do? Well, really the same thing that Nehemiah does. Pray, commit the whole thing to the Lord, and then get back to work. Satan will succeed if he distracts you from your work. So let's look back at Nehemiah's prayer. Look at, look at verse 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Do you, do you hear what's, what's being said here? Do you, do you, have you identified the type of prayer that this is? I, I figure uh, when, we, when we look at this and we recognize what this is, I know Mary would appreciate this. It's an imprecatory prayer. That's exactly what it is. It's an imprecatory prayer. Now, what in the world is an imprecatory prayer? What does that mean, imprecatory? The idea here is Nehemiah is praying for the demise of his enemy, which seems strange for a person of God to pray, right? I mean, that seems odd. I mean, you know, aren't we all to get along? Why would Nehemiah pray for someone's demise? I mean, listen to what he's saying. Listen to this. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to a land of captivity. That's pretty harsh, right? And then he says, do not cover their iniquity. He's saying, God, I don't even want you to atone for their sins. And do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Now, here's, here's the difference, and here's where we... Here's where if we pray an imprecatory prayer, we have to be careful. The thing about a praying an imprecatory prayer is all rooted in our motive. It's all rooted in the motive. Sometimes we want to see the demise of our enemy because of our own pride, right? We see our enemy and we see the things that they've done and the, or the bully and the person that has ridiculed us and we say, God, yeah, take them out. God, I'm, I'm on your team. And, and if we're not careful, it can be for our own self-gratification. It can be for our own glory. The, the check and balance here is to say, God, they are mocking you. And for the sake of your glory, Lord, will you take them out? Would you put a stop to them? Lord, if they're not going to repent, take them out. Lord, if they're not going to bring glory and honor to your name, take them out. The first time I heard an imprecatory prayer was um, shortly after September 11th of 2001. I heard a friend of mine pray, Lord, Whoever did this, you know, would you take them out? If they're not going to repent, if they are not going to come to know you as Savior, if they are going to continue with this destructive behavior, Lord, for your glory and for your sake, would you take them out? Now, I'd never heard someone pray 
an imprecatory prayer like that before. Someone who's praying for the demise of someone else. But the purpose of that imprecatory prayer is to say, God, your glory is on the line. Not my own personal revenge. That's the distinction. Sometimes if we're not careful, here's what we pray. We're like, Lord, I hope you'll show them. And it's for our own gratification. Lord, I hope that you'll, you'll handle them and you'll show them. And then I can be victorious. And I can, I can, no. No, our motive has got to be, Lord, your glory is at stake. So we have victory when we remain focused on our God-given task to build the kingdom of God. Pray. Spend time in prayer. Give the whole thing over to the Lord and continue to do what God has called you to do, even in the face of mounting ridicule. <laughs>